When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I would like to tell you a story. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturers of the finest knife treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Hey, welcome to Knife Talk. This is the podcast for knife makers and knife enthusiasts. And we are here to talk to you and entertain you while you do your thing. We are, my name is Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, here with the great and powerful <laughs> Mareko Momasi of Momasi Fire Arts, What's plus the, e- the equally great and enthusiastic and beautiful and beautiful Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. Welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome. So this is an emergency episode. This is something happened. Obviously, something happened. Hopefully, it wasn't too bad. But we're here to we're here to plug it away. Make it happen. What's uh? Okay. Yeah, man, making it happen. Well, uh, I guess I'll start off uh, what we've been working on last week. Uh, I myself, uh, like I talked about last week, I forged out a bunch of Damascus and ground out, or not ground out, but forged out the crazy uh, briar patch. Uh, mosaic and so i've been grinding on that getting it heat treated and um, getting it finished ground and it's coming together really nice i've been working just pounding away in the shop so uh working on a few sort of sets of chef knives power knives and bread knives um and they look really great having you know the three together with matching handles um they're looking good so yeah just sort of plowing through them what about yourself jeff it's been a sad week for me, guys. It's been a sad week for me. This is this is the end of Carl Childs. Carl Childs is oh, left, no. <laughs> and I'm super sad. This is like one of those things that I never thought it was going to happen. He was my intern for six months, and when he was my intern, I didn't see great things for him. And then he came to work for me, and it turned into he was a butter he was a caterpillar that turned into a butterfly, and he was fantastic. And he's now on his way to working in some sort of I don't know. He wants to. Go. He's flying to India. He's got his paper done. He's going to India to work on a farm. He's, uh, you know, we're gonna miss. We're gonna miss Craig. We're gonna miss Carl. We're gonna miss Carl Childs. And I'm sending you. Uh, I'm sending you off with peace and love and <sighs> oh, the, sadness. The sadness tender shop. side of Jeff. This is. I don't get that tender. I don't get that tender. I'm like a. I'm like a tough piece of meat. You got to cook me down for a while. But that's uh, you know the the. the the hole in my heart is for you. Son you never had. No, son I never wanted. So it's just, <laughs> it's, Carl Childs is off to toil his way in some sort of strange, he's going to be the, if you're in India and you're looking for a tall, thin, blonde kid, that's, char, that's, 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 uh, that's <laughs> Carl. Hand, so, so if he's, if he, they're going to, they're going to use him as a yoke for the ox when he's at that, they're going to stick him on top of the, <laughs> on top of the ox and he's going to be the yoke. That thin is a thin motherfucker right there. He's a thin motherfucker. He's the best. Bye, Carl. You you worked him too hard. Clearly, you worked him too hard. Dude, that guy is maybe 115 pounds soaking wet. Man, that's a noodle. That guy's a noodle. But I will say, 
I am a huge uh, fan of getting to know someone by their handshake. And unfortunately, when I shake someone's hand and they give me the fucking bullshit wet noodle handshake with the soft hands, I'm getting an idea of the kind of person you are. <laughs> and when I first met Carl, he gave me the, you know, the wet breadstick handshake. And I was like, I don't know if this dude's going to be able to do anything. And when he left, he gave me the vice grip with the hardened hands. And he nice. really transformed You himself. made a man out of the boy. I, he, he did something. Or he did something with his hand. He got in a fire or something like that. He made those, <laughs> those hands like tough. Hands got tough. <laughs> so, did you have any sort of leaving party for Carl? Did you both sit there with party hats on and you know have a few drinks? Uh, he he had never had chicken wings before, so I ordered some chicken wings. He's what? a uh, look. I'm telling you, this kid is an enigma wrapped in bacon. <laughs> he's the he's the greatest. There's so many things like there. We would listen to things, and he would hear a word that he had never heard of. He's a smart kid, but then he hears things he never had. I said, I said, what do you, have you ever had, we were talking about chicken wings. And he, and he said, I've never had chicken wings before. I'm like, well, I guess we're going to have chicken wings today. And we got, we ordered some wings and he's just like, these are, these are really good. What's that? I said, that's blue cheese dressing. And he says, wow, what do you do with that? I'm like, you dip your fucking wig in there, man. <laughs> so we live a little kid. So we did that and we had some wings and we did a little forging. We did a little hammer in with him. He forged out a little knife. And you know, it, you know, we send him off on his way, and he's off to India. You know, to hopefully not get he. You know, the funny part about him going to India is, is he told me that he was like, "Well, I need to, I need to make sure that uh, the first week I'm not doing anything." And I'm like, "Why is that?" He says, "Because I think I'm going to be sitting on the toilet for the first week." He's he's already <laughs> budgeted out. He's budgeted out uh, massive <laughs> diarrhea for the first week. So he's going to be he's he's a smart kid. He's like, "Yeah, the first week I'm going to be pretty useless." So hopefully, I'll, after that, I'll be all squared away. If he's never tried a chicken wing before, he's certainly going to pick something up. Oh, Carl Masala. He's fucked. It's great. <laughs> Love that kid. Bye-bye. Off, Auf, Auf, Zane. Do you know what? We're going to start with the, the question that I get the most of, and I'm sure you guys too uh, do too, which is about belt progressions and grit, grit progressions rather and finishes. Um, so everybody's going to have different opinions on this and everybody does things in a different way. So I'm just going to run through mine very quickly. And if you guys could do the same, yeah. um, I start with, um, profiling with a 60, 60 grit, then go up to a one twenty. question said, Jen, before sure. heat treatment or after heat treatment. Ah, compl- oh, sorry. Profiling is all done. I mean, my pre- mistake. I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. I was back yeah. on, I was back in India. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so 60 and a 120 ceramic belts um to profile i'll then drill and they go into heat treat without any bevels ground whatsoever oh. um, i always do everything post treating um just because i find you know it, it always upsets me when something comes out isn't straight and it requires extra mm. work and i'm pretty sure that can't be good for the steel you know this you see people almost cold bending stuff and that, that can't be good so I, I heat treat everything without without any bevels ground at all. Um, when it comes back out, I then start beveling. Again, 60, 120 ceramics. I then go to um, aluminium oxide belts or aluminum, as you Americans like to call <laughs> Why it. Why do we talk so deep? Aluminum. Why do we talk so deep? <laughs> um, I'll go 200, <laughs> 280 on the aluminum belts. Um, and then I'll just go straight to Scotch Bright belts. So I, I do the whole series: the, the coarse, medium, fine, extra fine, which are the um, 
it took me a long time to work out which was which because they're not marked in any way. So brown is coarse, medium's maroon, then blue, then mm. grey. Um, they're then ready for hand sanding for me. Um, so what I find the Scotch Bright does, Jeff will talk about his peaks and troughs, I'm sure, in just a minute. I find the Scotch Bright does that for me. Um, I then go to hand sanding, 180, 240, 360, 480, finish on a 600. Um, and then something I've got onto quite recently is using mops. Um, so I use three different mops. Mops? Um, mops on the, on the bench grinder, you know, um, cloth mops. Buffers. Oh, buffers. oh, oh, oh. I, maybe I didn't know what you were so talking I'll about. I'll start either. with a. With a... <laughs> I thought you get the you get, to, you get the Swiffer. I got the Swiffer. The Swiffer out. <laughs> Swiffer up the Swiffer. So I go with the mop. So I start with a C cell mop uh, with a grey uh, rouge compound. Um, then I go to a stitched wheel with a green compound, and then I go to it's it's a, it's an unstitched mop, but in the industry they seem to call it a G mop, um, which is my last one, and I use a pink rouge on that. And I'm done. That's virtually a mirror finish. Not quite a mirror finish. It's a sort of a blurry mirror. Wow. Um, but but the scratches are out, and that's that's, a, that's my progression. So yeah, that's, that's a very that's a very specific progression. It is. It seems to work. I mean, sometimes I'll stop after the hand sand. You know, that'll give you a nice sort of uniform satin finish, I suppose. Um, but if you just want to take it that further, it's just five minutes. Five minutes on the mops, um, and you get a different finish again. But, you know, there's no right or wrong way, but I'm just interested in what you guys do. That's it. I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm a, I, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what I was doing. And when I first started to do the knives, I, well, I'm going to tell you what I do now. So the first thing I do is I always profile with old belts because I feel like the old belts, they make it happen. And and what I do is uh, I use my old, like an old 36 belt is just does fine. I usually kind of profile everything in general with a, with a bandsaw. And then I leave it, I leave it very uh, loose to the line. And then afterwards I'll uh, use a, you know, go profile with a 30, old 36 belt and then I'll do a pre-grind before the heat treatment with a uh, – usually if I can. if I, have a, a, I use a Norton Blaze 36, but I, I don't put in um, the distal taper. And it's the same reason why uh, Craig doesn't, doesn't grind before heat treatment is because if, if – um, especially if it's going to be a uh, stainless steel knife, if you have a, a, a straight – uh, no, no distal taper in your spine. Then what will happen is uh, you'll be able to plate quench straighter. So I get much mm. better accurate. I get much more accurate heat treatments if I if I just uh, take a little bit of the excess material off with a 36, and then after heat treatment I go back to the 36 with a ceramic belt, and then I go I bump down from 36 to uh, 80. Then I do a couple of passes with the 120. Then I use a gator belt. Um, Use the A three hundred, then I'll hit it with a, a Scotch Bright belt just to kind of like chill it out a little bit, and then I go straight to my disc grinder. And usually, what I do is I, I want the, if 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 I did a flat a really flat job, and obviously after the heat treatment, the first thing I do is I cut in the distal taper um, with the thirty six, and then I kind of yeah so thirty six eighty one twenty Gator belt Scotch Bright. Then I go to the disc grinder, and then the whole idea is, is I'm taking away those scratch patterns, and I'm going to a finer uh, grit, and I bump from usually like 120 on a disc grinder to 220. And if I can get it nice and tight for at 220, I'll start hand sanding 
after a clean 220. And what that ha what it does is it allows me to have a faster hand sanding. And I don't hand I don't hand sand. I learned from J uh, Jeremy Spake. He had said that he started hand sanding on a higher grit. And what happens is, is you, you end up getting less gouges. Like, so I started, I always start a hand sanding at the, the coarsest grid will be at 220. And it's actually pretty good because once I get down to 220 on the disc grinder, um, it goes pretty quick uh, starting into 220. And then I hand sand 220. And then I have a different progression for the hand sanding. And then usually uh, that's it. I don't, I don't, I don't do the mirror finish. I, I go finish off with a light uh, satin finish off the hand sanding. Hmm. I've got a question actually for your progressions there. Go ahead. So um, once you've done your your profiling and you do you know a rough bevel grind, do you do any sort of normalizing cycles before they go into heat treat? I do that for carbon steel knives. Usually yep. for carbon yep. steel knives, I always normalize. And the reason why is because – and here's, here's something that I've I, – I always – I normalize uh, – you don't have to. But when you're normalizing with carbon steel, you are – and you do get better results in regards to the grain structure. But also, if you do three courses of, of normalizing, when you're heat treating an oil, you're less likely to get a bad warp. So um, yeah. I do normalize. I also do like the finish. Like I'm a, I'm a, my, one of my favorite parts of my knives are I like the transition between the handle to the blade. So I usually try to keep that, uh, that Ricasso area, whatever the mill scale is. And if I've done the, um, you know, a carbon steel and it's got a lot of scale on it, I keep that. I like that transition between the bolster, the Ricasso, and the blade. So I do know I don't normalize stainless steel. I've never had a problem uh, with having to normalize stainless steel. I also try to keep it. I try to keep it uh, cool. I never. You never. I never see any colors for the stainless steel when I'm when I'm pre grinding, especially with a with a yeah, with yeah. a with a new thirty six belt. You never really have to worry about it. And another question, actually, I suppose this is more to do a heat treat. And again, this could probably be another show. When you um, you do your quench, let's say it's a carbon steel, when you do your quench, how long does it normally take before you then put it in for a temper cycle? Well, you know, one thing is um, a lot of it has to do with how many I'm doing. So, yeah, so, same with me, yeah. So, you know, luckily for me, I have two heat treating ovens. Ha, ha, ha. And, um, you know, obviously the hardest part about a heat treating oven is getting uh, – if you have a, a heat treating oven and you're heat treating at, you know, 1,500, 1,515, 1,520, getting it down to 400 is really hard. And the reason why is because it just takes a while. But the other thing is, is let's say you want to start a temper cycle. A lot of times the residual heat in the oven – in the bricks will kind of change if you if you're very strict on what you want uh, if you want a 400 degree uh, if you want a 400 degree uh, temper you have to kind of crack the door open to make sure that you don't spike up because that's what usually happens but what I usually try to do is I'll do my first temper after my heat treatment so hopefully if I've heat treated five or six knives I'm I'm, I'm tempering within an, uh, I would say about an hour yeah. Yeah. I only asked because that's something I never did because I've only got the one oven. Um, and what up until quite recently, I do my heat treat. And as you just said, for those reasons, I'd need to wait and it quite often be overnight. And in the morning, I'd get in and the first thing I do is run a few temper cycles. Um, but I've got a bit of a tip. So if you've just got the one oven, 
Um, and you obviously want to temper as soon as you can after heat treat. Get a bunch of fire bricks, put them into your oven, leave the door open, and what those bricks will do, they'll suckle that temperature and they'll they'll hold the temperature. So when you take these bricks out, your oven's going to be cooler much, much quicker. That's a great um, idea. I never even thought about I, that. Yeah, and I find within about an hour, you're ready to go. So it'll then hold, you know, your, your 400 degrees, whatever you're going to do for your temper cycle. It'll then hold that very, very steady. Craig, that's um, an so incredible just, tip. It works. It works. Holy cow. Like four, four fire brick ovens are going to suck it. It's going to be a heat sink, and it's going to suck all that, that heat off. Exactly, exactly. Wow. I mean, the ideal, the ideal is to buy a second oven. I mean, <laughs> Or if you're want, doing stainless steel, use your home oven. That's what I did forever. Yes. When I was doing all my knives, like if I was doing a set of knives, I'd come home and I would, you know, stainless steel, it's not a big deal because it's, you're not, you're, you're quenching within plates. So you don't have to worry yeah. as much about, uh, you don't have to worry about oil or gas, you know, oil or, you know, filth in your oven. But I mean, stainless steel is perfect for that reason. Isn't it going to, it's fine. You can use your home oven. You're no but again, if you're using a home oven, that temperature is going to sway massively because they'll use it, you know, a, a thermostat system, which isn't right. going to be too reliable. But again, in a home oven, stick some fire bricks in there. Um, your temperature will be much more stable. Whoa. Um, so I love this. Works. I love this tip. That is an awesome tip. That's a good tip. <laughs> Back to grinding. Back to grinding progressions. All right. So everything I do is all forged. So the first thing I got to do is knock that forge scale off. And so I use a worn out 36 grit belt to kind of knock off that forge scale and also do some of the profiling because, uh, you know, jamming, jamming the spine or the edge of the blade into that, into the belt is really harsh on the abrasives. So I try to work with a, a worn out belt. So I'm not just tearing off the abrasive of a fresh belt. And so, and then after that, I, I do, I, then I go to a fresh 36 and I start doing uh, my rough grinding and I take that to uh, 120 before heat treating and then post heat treating I go back in with 36 and grind it down to like 80% of what I I want my final dimension to be essentially of my knife and then from there I go to uh, 120 and then 220 and I I finish on a 400 on a machine I always use fresh belts because while you want to try to conserve your belts and not just tear the abrasive off and, and you want to get the most work out of your belts. You're, you're going to be, you're going to save time by using fresh belts versus beating away at an old belt and potentially actually overheating your blade. But anyways, after that, I go to hand sanding, a hand sanding start, a hand sand starting at 400. And for my Damascus, I take it up to 800 and then for like a homone or a mono steel blade, I take it up to twelve hundred grit, and that's basically it. Wow! Craig's Community Showcase. So we got another one who isn't actually a maker. This is more of um, something that you guys need to pay attention to. So this is a another Instagram account, and this is for another podcast. Oh. This is the Blacksmiths Pub Podcast. We've mentioned them before on the show. Uh, they're great. It's a great podcast for smiths, knife makers, or aspiring blacksmiths. And that's by, you know, two friends of the show, Jesse Savage and Rick Barter. Um, so go listen. They've got, they do a really good podcast. Um, I say it's the Blacksmiths, Smiths with an S, 
pub podcast and it really does sound like just a couple of guys in the pub talking away it's really easy to listen to um they drop lots and lots of knowledge um yeah go check them out i will say they are two very close friends of mine they're also uh jesse and rick are terrific people and recently they just recorded um a podcast with jesse james and i will say it was the best uh, if you like Jesse James or you want to know about him, it's the most in-depth conversation you're going to hear with Jesse James. And they, I learned so much about podcasting from them because this interview is masterful. It's a masterpiece uh, about Jesse James. He was super calm. He was having a good time. He was busting their balls. They do a great job and they get the best in the world of blacksmiths. And, and they're dynamite guys and it's really a lot of fun. And Jesse and Rick are fantastic. So, yeah. Blacksmith's Pub all the way, 100%. Yeah, so that's at the Blacksmith's Pub podcast on Instagram. Go listen to them. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? Here's the first question. The first question is from of someone who's been very supportive of us, and I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear from him, and it's, it's from uh, Oak Heart Ironworks. And what he writes is, what is your top desert island knife style for cooking? I mean, I use a, a Standish or 8-inch chef's knife for virtually everything. Virtually everything. Um, it, it re- I really find it strange when you see people, like, chopping knives and things with a paring knife, you know, using a paring knife on a board. That's, that's, that's It's not the purpose for that. So a standard sort of Western-style 8-inch chef knife I use for 90% of the time in the kitchen. If I were to have, you know, the the... the, the the Desert Island Knife is such a great idea because it's like uh, when I did the Epicurious episode with um, with Epicurious on YouTube, uh, I really wanted to try to have four knives that every kitchen needs. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would definitely agree with you 100% in regards to the idea of an 8-inch chef's knife. I think an 8-inch chef's knife, I think mean, a lot of people talk about 10-inch chef's knives, 9-inch chef's knives, and... And I just think that you get to the point where it's like you don't need that much knife. Sometimes mm. eight inches is almost oh, it sounds sexy, but eight inches is a perfect <laughs> length for a perfect length for your knife. You gotta you're gonna make everybody happy with that eight inches, baby. And so one one of the great things about eight, eight inches of knife is you're not gonna it's not gonna overlap your board. It's not gonna sh- shoot over the side of your board. You're gonna stay on that board of that eight inches. So I I would do an eight inch chef's knife. Uh, I prefer a full tang knife over a hidden tang knife. I like a little bit of weight in the, in the handle. So I would have a um, – I would probably have a, a French slash German style European 8-inch chef's knife, full tang. I do like an integral bolster, but, you know, we haven't gotten to that point yet where I'm making integral bolsters with a, with a flat – with a full tang. So that's what I would go with. I would do one of my 8-inch – Full tang. I probably go carbon steel too, which is crazy because I do so much stainless steel. I'm now I've been doing so much carbon steel that I've been using this eight inch carbon steel knife that I made a long time ago, and I think I would go with an eight inch carbon steel full tang chef's knife with a G10 handle because you know that wood's going to go somewhere sometime. You're on a deserted island, right? Who knows? You're gonna mm, cut. You gotta. True. You know. You don't. You want to. You know, make all that salty water and sand. You gotta. It's gonna fuck you up. A little G10. Jeff's eight inches and salty water. Hey, got it. Oh. Hey man, can I ask you a question? 
we have uh, Alex Steele's former intern, this fantastic young knife maker, Bull Blades. Has been mm, yes. he's been a super super supportive. He's a dynamite guy. I like him very much. He's he's a little scary looking, but I'm with you. He wants to know what's your opinion about doing restorations. Would uh, do, do you ever take on restoration jobs, and what what are your thoughts on taking on restorations? I've I've only done work on my own knives. Um, I think it would be quite awkward working on somebody else's knife because. Essentially, what you're doing, you're giving this knife back to a customer and saying, now it, it's ready to be used and it's the best it can be. If you haven't done all the work on that knife, um, I think that's pretty pretty uh, awkward to deal with. Um, because if something were to fail, is it your fault? Is it their fault? It's, so personally, I don't do that. Um, but yeah, I can I can see, you know, Knives are very precious to people, and they, you know, they can be passed down from family members and so on. So you'd, I can see there's a need for getting them restored, um, but it's not something that I personally do. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I recently got a, a DM from a friend of ours who will rename, remain nameless, and he was given a couple knives to sharpen. And he sent me pictures of the knives, and one was a paring knife that was so rusty that it was like crazy, and then a chef's knife – where the handle was literally coming off. So it was it was really messed up and the handle there was obviously, you know, something had swollen or the pins, you know, failed or whatever. And he he was just like, "Do I do I fix this knife? And if I fix this knife, what do I have to do?" He just wants it sharpened. And I told him I was much along the lines of that's something I wouldn't even touch. And I, I'm personally because you know, look, if 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 you if it's something you want to do, if it's especially if it's a friend or whatever, I think you should, you know, it's whatever you want to do. Especially, you know, I I don't really, I don't really, I'm not, I don't offer sharpening services for other people's knives. Like if if you have one of my knives and you want me to sharpen it, I'm happy to do it. Um, but I I tend to not do other people's knives for the same reasons you're saying. But all of a sudden, it's like if you're getting this. You know, knife that the thing's falling apart, and you, all of a sudden you just open your mouth and say, "Well, now you gotta, you know, redo the handle. You can't, and you can't just tighten it up. You gotta take the handle off, blah, 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 blah. and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it turns into going from sharpening the knife to a total rebuild. So it's what you want to get into it, obviously. And um, I, 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 the only last time I sharpened someone's knives was for a, a friend of mine who's a police officer. And the funny, the funny thing was, was uh, he asked me, he's like, do you think you could sharpen these knives? I'm like, yeah, of course, as long as they're not, you know, and I made a joke. I said, just don't bring Cutco knives into my shop. And I thought, he couldn't possibly have Cutco knives. And then he shows up with a cereal box, a cere- an empty cereal box with five Cutco knives in it. And they're all banging around. They're in the all banging around. And, and, and he oh. came in very sheepish. And he's just like, uh, I, I, I remember you said don't bring in Cutco knives. They're all Cutco <laughs> knives. And I laughed and it was very awkward. But And I sharpened them for him. And I was just like, yeah, that's fine. I'll sharpen your Cutco knives. And But I, I'm a, I tend to not offer sharpening services. And I, and yeah. I think especially when you're in the knife business, it's like it gets too much. It's a little too much. Yeah. And I've I've got quite a small shop, so when I sharpen, it takes me ten fifteen minutes to get things ready to sharpen. Right. 
Um, so I don't want to happen is, you know, people just pop in and saying, can you sharpen this? Because it's taken, it's taken half an hour of my work day out. Yeah, it's, I, I, I actually, sharpening knives to me has become, uh, it used to be, I used, I wouldn't let anyone come in. I wouldn't let uh, my in, uh, interns be in. I would make sure there was a day that no one was going to come to disturb me. And then it was mm-hmm. like I can listen to music. And it was like because I was so afraid. I'm like, you got to this point. And now all of a sudden, you, the last bit. And, but uh, yeah, I don't really like to sharpen other people's knives. I, you know, take it to somewhere else. And then what do you charge? All of a sudden, it's like you're making custom knives. And then you got to, you got to, what do you get charged $25 a knife? You crazy? Yeah. Yeah. By the inch. By the inch. Oh, baby. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? All right. This message, this question comes from Jay Matz. How do you shape and finish your handles? Any tip for flat results with wood? Thanks. I turned a bit of a corner this week with with shaping handles. So it's something that I always dread. I enjoy it, but it's always, I've never been comfortable with it, knowing that it isn't as good as it could be. Um, but, um, I think it's just practice. So I use, um, a standard two by 72, which most people are going to be using. Um, I've started using those scallop belts. Um, so what I like to do is use the very top part of the grinder. So it's not against platen. It's quite, it's quite a slack belt. Um, and then if you, if you're putting the, the wood across, you're holding the blade and you're holding the end of the, the, the end of the, uh, the tang or the handle. Um, you can sort of spin the knife and take the edges off and round off corners nicely. What the scallop belts allow you to do is sort of come at an angle, um, whereas if you didn't have a scallop belt, it'll sort of bite in and leave leave an edge. Right. Um, so, yeah, using them, um, I'm starting to get, you know, much better shapes. Um, I generally use a much thicker wood than I, I'm going to end up with. Yes, um, yes. So, for example, with my steak knives, they're not contoured in any way. They're completely flat. So they're just going hard up against a hard platen um, and just go slowly. Just take your time and just keep looking. And also to look at look at it from all angles because it may look straight from, you know, looking straight on. But look down the, the down the heel of the blade and make sure everything is lining up nicely. Just take your time and, and, it, and it'll work. Um, but, yeah, it did take me some time to just get comfortable. And it's something that I'm still not 100% comfortable with, but it's it's something that over time will will come. I think it's a, you know, it's a good question. I, I, you know, I know that a lot of people, I know that my buddy Matt Paul from MP Knives is, uh, he does a ton of grinding to the point where his, his hand finishing um, is not very much. He does really good. What I try to do is I try to do it like I was, you know, I try to use the same techniques I was with forging, which is I'd get it to square and then I'd break mm. the corners and then what I start off with was I just – I get all my – I get my profile uh, close you know, to the steel and then um, I break the edges either on my grinder uh, – on my 2x72. But recently I've been using the, um, the disc grinder a lot. I use the disc grinder a lot. So I, 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 do, the, I do the rough stuff on, the, on, the, on a flat, uh, flat platen. And then I actually use for uh, for breaking the corners. I use the flat, flat platen, and then I use the disc grinder a lot for making my uh, for making uh, like I try to I the bolster. I make a little bit on the thinner side than the the, the belly of the knife, and I, I just I use the disc grinder a lot. And then actually I use uh, Barreco gave me um, 
uh, half-inch uh, plat- uh, uh, contact wheel that I use for that underside of the knife, um, that underside of where your, your fingers go uh, up, to the, mm. up to the bolster. And, and then I do most of the rest of it with the um, – I do hand sanding for the rest of it. I, I, I like to do the, the carving. Well, you gave me a tip this week, actually, regards to those those inner radiuses. Um, so I've I've struggled for some time. So I've got you know small contact wheels and so on, but I'm always getting bumps. I can never yeah. get in there. That's that's super cool finish. Um, so you know I've I've tried that hole on the edge of the platen. You know, using the edge of the uh, if, you, if you use your track in and you get the belt to come off slightly right. and. Um, do it that way against a tool rest um but again i was just getting bumps and you gave me some advice this week and it just works and it's so simple you just need to do it in one pass in one direction so what i was doing i was going back and forth in the area you know left right left right in in that one area to try and get it right um but yeah if you just do the one pass in the one direction it just smooths everything right out and you get this you know a the perfect finish. Um, I, I learned that when I was at uh, uh, when I was at the Center for Metal Arts, we were doing railings, and we were finishing. Like if we would do a railing, and we were welding to uh, an escutcheon plate or a plate on the bottom. Sometimes yeah. we would finish off the the after uh, grinding off the weld, we'd finish it with a with a you know, good Dremel for the most part um, that we actually called a Tootsie Roll. And I was when I was learning how to do it. I had to learn how to just do strokes because if you go back and forth, when you do the pat, when you come back, it 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 always gouges where you make the turn. So you you have to do it very like it has to be like a stroke, like a very quick stroke because if you go back and yeah. forth, it's gonna it's gonna cut in and make those gouges. So that's that's how I learned how to do that. Yeah, and what I find actually, if you're letting the belt, if you're letting the belt hang over the the platen there to do these these inner radiuses. Um, don't let too much of the belt out because then it will catch. You want literally sort of, you know, two, three millimeters hanging over. Anything more, it will be more flexible, but you, you're always going to get those like gouges and not a clean finish. My it's... handles don't have any flats on them pretty much. And I mean, unless it's a faceted handle, um, but I do everything on the machine. I, I, I very rarely do any kind of hand sanding. Uh, I've just been able to control the belts in a way so that I can get all the contours and everything I I, I want and need. Um, but regarding the handle, um, I, I guess the the ones I do most re- uh, most commonly are the faceted westerns. But moreover, are the Japanese style handles. And um, I you know I don't what what has really helped me with doing uh, the flats on a handle well is having a uh, uh, a variable speed grinder makes a huge difference. Uh, and even before I joined Dragon's Breath Forge, where they have like the dial down uh, variable speed, I had a four step grinder. Um, I think just taking your time and working also with sharp belts again makes a huge difference. Um, I, I've been in a place where I've tried to push a dull belt too far and it does more harm than good and it's just you just got to get in there with a fresh belt and do the work and but yeah going slow especially if it's in an area that's is a little finicky or you're not as confident about um doing it slower is gonna be better even if that means you have to actually take it off the grinder and do it by hand with files or with sandpaper or whatever um that's better than totally messing it up and having to start over from zero 
Totally agree. So, that's that's the thing. You can always go if you go too much. If you if you if you take off too much, you can't go back. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of us are using liners as well, like G10 liners. Right. So you need to go very slow because um, right. you don't want to burn that liner. I I I worked with a white liner this week for the first time, Uh-oh. and that thing would just burn almost immediately. So you have to it has to be super slow, brand new belt, and you know you can get a decent yeah, finish. Yeah, white ain't you know, right. I think it's just taking your time. White ain't right with the G10. White ain't right. It's it's a tough mm. one, man. It's it's hard to keep clean too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? <laughs> this one is from American Wastelander, and it's specifically to, to Morocco. Oh. I'm working with a hammer and an anvil. What's the best way to set welds on Damascus? Oh, my God. <laughs> Carefully. Uh, you want a smaller – if you're going to do it by hand, you want to work with a smaller billet. So my giant uh, – 37 cubic inch billets that I usually work with, you do not want to do that by hand unless you have somebody with a giant sledge helping you. Um, But so my first tip would be to uh, start with a smaller billet, like maybe four or five, maybe even six cubic inches, but that would be a max. Um, Just because the, the issue with setting a good weld is that you have to transfer the force all the way through the billet. And if it's a giant billet and either you don't have the strength or you don't have the right equipment, it's going to be, you're going to be in a tough spot. So I would suggest start with enough material uh, that you think you'll have enough for at least one knife by the end. Uh, And depending on what you're doing, like if it's a hunting knife, a three, four inch hunting knife, like you're going to be in a good spot. Uh, You can forge up some material by hand pretty readily. Um, But yeah, I just... I guess I would I would suggest using starting with a small billet and also uh, getting a hold of some flux, uh, especially some anhydrous flux, which means it just doesn't have any like weird moisture in it, like twenty mule does. People use twenty mil. I've even used twenty mil mule borax, uh, but the problem is once that gets hot, it starts flowing all over, flo- floating all over the place, and uh, you don't want to be breathing that stuff in. So the anhydrous doesn't do that. It just melts right onto the steel. So, uh, and you can get that offline a lot of different places. Um, and then other than that, I... That flux also just, that flux also destroys your forge. It does destroy your forge. So if you can somehow manage to do it without that, uh, I would suggest it. But it's hard to do hand-welded billets without flux. So I guess kind of be ready for that. <laughs> I think that's a great point that uh, that you, I think that a lot of people see Damascus being made and they just assume that you have to have a giant billet. You're a hundred percent right. I know I know guys like a good friend of mine, Isaiah Schroeder, uh, Schroeder Schroeder Knife Works out in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. When he started making Damascus, he was doing these very low layer lazy twists. Uh, same thing with our buddy uh, Tucker uh, Tucker Paris out in California. He was doing these guys are doing low layer. Uh, Damascus twists. They were very uh, not easy to do, but like much more handleable uh, with without a press or without a, a, a power hammer. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think if you did a low low layer twit low layer count, you can get these beautiful Damascus and 
I love that point that you said that you have to be able to transfer that power all the way through. Yeah. That's awesome, awesome, awesome. Point. Well, and you know, I've even so uh, some of the first tile weld billets that I did for my mosaics, uh, I was actually having some struggle. I was struggling with by doing it, doing it by hand with my press, and and uh, so I ended up actually setting those welds by hand. And um, they stuck great. And the the trick is just having a good heat source, having a like my my hammer is a five pound hammer, and uh, so I'm I'm swinging that thing hard as hell, but also in a controlled manner, so I'm not just skewing the stack all over the place or anything weird. Um, but once it's welded up, then the issue is drawing it <laughs> drawing it out. And so yeah. then I would suggest if you literally only have a hammer and an anvil. Um, you know, either use the horn, use your cross peen, use the edge of the anvil, uh, or you can even, if you've got a little bit of stuff, you can put together a hardy tool that essentially would create a fullering uh, tool that would help draw out that billet in a shorter amount of time. But it's definitely doable. It's just a lot of work for sure. The the fullering idea is that when you're using fullers or using the horn, it's your instead of you have to see it more like you're taking bites, right. you're taking pinches, right. and you're moving you're moving the material as opposed to just squishing it. Like when you're using a press, you're just compressing it with such incredible power. But if you're using the horn or using uh, like a cross peen or a, or any kind of you know a, 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 any kind of fullering device, you're taking bites like you're using your little finger and you're like making mo- more material move with concentrated force. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about abrasives today. I I have a note for all of everybody, experienced or inexperienced, um, really. It's it's using a dressing stick. Okay, let me back up actually just a second. So one of the issues, especially with uh, that I came up against with thirty six grit belts, uh, I you know I was using some very expensive, really nice belts, but they would have they would do this thing. Uh, that's commonly referred to as glazing over. So at a certain point, the abrasive, for, for whatever reason, doesn't really uh, kind of break down as it should. And uh, it it has plenty of good abrasives still on the belt, but it doesn't. The belt doesn't seem to cut for shit. And I I actually had uh, a pile of belts, literally starting from when I first started making knives on my own. And it built up for three years because I was like, there's got to be a good way to figure out how to break down the abrasive so I can get good use out of it. And so the what I ended up doing is uh, I, I found – I got a, actually a tip from a friend, Tom Buckner, who's a, a maker in Olympia. And he uses a dressing stick. It's a stone dressing stick, and it's it comes to a point. It's a diamond-pointed uh, rod. Essentially, it's a half inch rod with a like a little. It looks like a pencil in a way, but it's got a diamond at the tip at it, tip of it. And what you do is you, as you are using your belt, if it seems to not be cutting the way it ought to, you just gently drag drag the tip of that across the belt, and that diamond will break down the ceramic abrasive, so it'll start cutting fresh again. And I've been getting, uh, you know, twenty percent more work out of my belts using uh, this dressing stick. Um, than, than I used to. And so I'm, I'm using my belts, especially the coarse grits. This is really only good for the super coarse. I would say, uh, 60 or maybe 80 and below. 
um, go any finer than that, then there just really isn't any uh, abrasive to break down. But especially for a 36, I've been getting a ton of life out of 36s using these dressing sticks uh, to break down that abrasive and get all the work out of them that I possibly can. Well, 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 here we are again into, into beefs. This, um, I will say that this is a beef that uh, I think that a lot of people feel, and I just want to kind of go into it with, you know, as a, as a, as a fellow knife maker and someone who wants to help you. There are a lot of cooks out there and chefs and people and personalities and Instagram people who go out and they'll, they're fans of your work and they'll send you a message and they'll say, hey man, if you send me one of your knives, I will promote it to all my followers. Or <laughs> what I'll do is I'll, uh, I, I will give you exposure the kind of exposure that will help sell your knives. I know everybody gets it. I'm sure you both have gotten mm. it, and I get yeah. it all the time. I would say that anybody who asks you for a free knife, you've got to tell them no. And this is the reason why. The only way it ever works is if they're willing to – and this is what we do at my, at my company, Fader Knives. What I do is I know you want a free knife. I know you want a free knife. I want a free knife. But guess what? It's not the way it works. So what you need to do is anytime someone asks you, oh, I got, you know, you know, you got to look at their profile and you're going to see who it is. Obviously, if it's Emeril Lagasse or if it's someone like Jamie Oliver, you might want to reconsider. But everybody else, they're not going to promote you the way you need to be promoted. What you have to do is you have to know that you are the one who is they want something of yours. You're the one of, who has value. And what you're going to see is you're going to be able to dictate the, the terms. You, some dickhead with 10,000 followers, you, don't, they, you need to be able to move – you need to be able to move 12 knives. So that's what we do. What we say is um, we work with chefs and we'll say, you know, the whole idea is that you, you're, you're, you're actively, selling, actively selling knives. So what I suggest to you is realize your value and you've got to tell these guys that I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you're some line cook from Schenectady. I'm not giving you free anything. You got to work. I'm going to put you to work. If you want a free knife, you got to move some shit. And with that said, so everyone wants to be something for free. You have to tell them, forget it, but, and know that, you know, understand your value. But now, with that said, you need to stop asking for free shit too. So you need to not send messages to uh, these companies saying, hey, man, I'm a knife maker. I'll promote your shit. Or I have a lot of followers. I'll give you all this great content. I'll give you – you're known for the kind of person that you are. I get messages all the time about chefs asking for free – I know the kind of chefs that ask for free shit. But I also know the kind of knife makers – and blacksmiths and bladesmiths who are asking for free shit too because everybody talks. Everybody says, what do you know about this guy? What do you know about this guy? Oh, this guy's begging for shit all the time. I think you need to establish yourself as a person who doesn't need to beg for stuff. And anybody who wants free shit is not going to help you. They want free shit. So stop asking and know your value. Nice beef, nice beef. And just to piggyback on that, I mean, 
yeah, you know, don't give your stuff away. It's devaluing what you do, what we all do. Um, but there has been times when I've approached other people and given them a free knife in return for feedback. You know, maybe it's a new style, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be so afraid of doing that. But if somebody's reaching out to you, just saying, hey. Obviously, obviously, it's, you know, it's not it's not good. Obviously, there are there are exceptions. I just think yeah. that and I've given away I gave away some knives, some oyster knives to this outdoor bullshit event thinking, all right, maybe it'll turn into something. Guess what? It turned into nothing. Most of these guys, mm-hmm. they had a fucking work. You need to be these people need to be able to sell 10 or 12 of your knives for it to be worth it for you to give one away. So yeah. I understand, you know, certain things are, you know. But I've had – just to give you an example about exposure, exposure doesn't pay your bills. Exposure is not uh, uh, something that's going to pay anything. And just to give you that idea, when I did the Epicurious video, we are up to – we're pushing uh, 2,500,000 uh, views, which is a lot. It's a ton. You'd think it's a lot. My yeah. website, my website catalog, uh, catalogs where people come from and how, how people found us. Not one. I've not gotten one sale – from Epicurious. And part of that is because I was promoted in a way that I'm not a knife maker, that I'm a knife seller. So when you get these guys saying, I'm going to be on Chopped, I'm going to be on Next Food Network Star, I'm, when they put my, your knife on, they're going to know they're going to know it's your knife and you're going to sell. They're not. You know, you go on a, all these shows, they're not going to have a banner that says your knife on. If you go on, don't listen to this bullshit. These TV people, no one has ever watched a TV show and, and spotted a knife and say, well, I wonder where that's from, and then do the research. <laughs> you got to just, you got to, these goddamn, you know, I've gotten, I could tell stories. These, these, these people are leeches. They're, they're, they don't want your help. And, and don't be desperate. God. Well, if I can beef over, beef over. Beef over. If I can jump on your beef too, actually, yes. I've had a lot of people, especially when I first started out, I had a lot of people reaching out and saying, hey, you should send me a knife. I, I work in an open yeah. kitchen. People are constantly asking me what kind of knives that I'm working with. And I, sometimes I was tempted, but most of the time I wasn't. And part of the issue no, was, especially good. when I was first starting out, I just it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time to invest in building one of the knives that I build to then turn around and give it away for free with no no guarantee of return. And the, the thing was like, I just, I just could not afford it. Uh, and I can see how it would be, you know, uh, attractive to try to do something like that. I still get chefs, uh, reaching out saying, Hey, you know, I would love to get a, get one of your knives. I put, I put it on blast and I'm just like, look, you know, I'm doing good on my own. Um, so I'm not too worried about it, but I, 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 what I started doing is, um, donating knives for like a charity or something to like that's for, great for it to actually do some work to help other people um as kind of, but also kind of as a fuck you to the people who are asking me for a free knife yeah, that's a tax and, write-off so um but you know the greatest promotion i've gotten are from full-on paying customers like joe rogan blew me the fuck up and right and he paid full price he waited and you know that those are the kind of customers that I think all makers really want is people aren't gonna because we're not selling a commodity. It's not a commodity. These are handmade things. These so, are luxury items. So you know we're not trying to pump them out at the lowest price possible. I mean, it, obviously it would be great to get them and to to be more monetarily accessible as possible. But at the same time, 
you know, we're doing work. We're doing hard work. And we're but we're one of we're very few people in the world who can actually do that work. And you know, it's funny because you and I have this. We have a friend in common who bought a knife from me and then tried to get a free one out of you. And you co- contacted me, and, the, and I th- you contacted me because you thought I don't know if you thought, but I figured it was because we had a connection. And you thought, well, maybe this is the dude I should kind of faders behind him. So maybe, and I told you, don't, I'll fucking don't give him anything for free. Yeah. I think that also the chefs that you meet, the real guys, the real guys who are really good dudes. They will never ask for free shit. Like the guys that I work with who um, – like Carl Ruiz, yeah. that motherfucker had never once asked for one thing for free. He actually – I gave him some for free because he sold so many knives. And the last time he said to me, I want another knife. But if – I just took a, a tie boba. I took a, uh, I took a kickboxing class and I'll knock you the fuck out if you don't give me a bill. Those are the guys – those are the guys – the guys who know how hard you work and the guys who are ready to pay. Yeah. The other thing is, is like for me – I never haggle with anybody. When I buy hammers from any of my friends or when somebody gives me a price, I fucking pay it. I don't I never ask for free shit right. because you're known for the you're known. You become known for that guy's. I I I know a guy who bought a knife of mine and a friend of mine said, "Oh yeah, that guy hits me up all the time." There's a couple of those kinds of guys and you just have to under you have to be a little bit more they want your object, they want your thing, and you need to have your own value on it and say, "No, no, no. No, no. You got to work. If you want a free knife, you got to work, boy." Yeah, get to work. Yeah, I think that's the only way to appreciate yeah. it. Too. Yeah, no, no, no. This isn't like your 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 exposure is is garbage. It's nothing. You're not going to sell shit. You're going <laughs> to fucking. I want to see some. I want to see some. I want to see some results. I'm going to make you work, boy. You're going to work. Right. Right. I've got a quick beef, and then we're going to finish off with Morocco's beef. Yeah. My beef is with the. <sighs> certain members of communities so what we're trying to do here with knife talk is obviously put out an entertaining podcast that will inform people educate people um but a result of that is a community has sprung up so we've got the forum we obviously we've got followers on instagram and that kind of thing and everybody's just very very helpful to each other and that's what we're trying to nurture people helping each other um but a few times this week i've seen people calling people out, um, maybe mentioning their work isn't the best or they're not being encouraging. So, you know, take that effort of calling people out and encourage them instead. It's a lot easier and it just makes our industry nicer to work in um, and everybody likes to be helped. Nobody likes to be told that what they're doing isn't good. I mean, there's feedback, there's there's criticism you can give, but it needs to be constructive. It needs to be done in a way and maybe not so public. Not to mention somebody... unsolicited. <laughs> exactly. Unsolicited. Unsolicited, that's, unsolicited that's, is really where it comes That's out. the key. But I think sort of almost a naming and shaming culture is something that I certainly don't want to be part of, and I'm sure the other guys feel the same as Great. well. So just, you know, we're there to help people, and we want everybody within the community to do the same. So that's me done. That's my beef over. You got to do your thing and let people live their lives. Right. And don't, you know, we, we're all in this together. God damn you. We're all in this together. Uh, this week, uh, my my beef is, it's kind of on the minor side again, uh, but it's metal slivers. I hate metal slivers. And they get in your finger and they're so small and then you can't see them, but you can fucking feel them. 
and they just gotta they just gotta work their way out. I actually still have a couple in my uh, my left index finger. I, I was grinding on a blade, and idiotically, uh, I wasn't thinking about it and and let the the edge. It wasn't sharp. It was still dull. It was, but uh, it has all those little wiry uh, metal shards or slivers and stuff coming off, and one went right into my finger. And uh, sorry, it's kind of a weak beef, but. No, that's not a weak beef. No, no, something that affects us all. <laughs> you know what the worst, the worst, the worst metal slivers I ever got was when I would use a die grinder at a metal shop, and you know, the, with with not with like a uh, like a sanding burr, but like a uh, a carbide burr, like a like you know, like a burr. Yeah, yeah. And it would just shoot. It would shoot metal shiver, sh- uh, slivers everywhere, and I'd always get them in my hand, and it would be the point where I'd see my hand, and I'd be like. I'll never get these all out. There's like hundreds of them, and oh, and they'll get my jacket or get my shirt. And I I hate metal slivers are the worst. So I'm I'm with you on that beef. Fuck you. Have slivers. you not got the <laughs> that tool that the, the you know the big the hand magnet they call them, don't they, to get the slivers hand out? Hand magnet. You've not got one of them. Hand Whoa. magnet. What the fuck is a hand <laughs> magnet? I'm joking. Oh, There's no such thing. Is that? I did get a, somebody a gave idea. me a. Uh, an eye magnet for when you get uh, slivers in your eye. Oh, Jesus. I did get that. It's, but I, I'm Ooh, terrified because, you know, if you get like a spark in your eye, that's the reason why you got to wear eye protection. It's, it's one of it's because of splinters. The other thing is if you get a hot slag in your eye, it, Oof. what happens is, is it kind of like melts and, and it's not just, it's in there. So they have these, and you have to go to the doctor and the hospital, and they got to take it out, and it's a production. <laughs> so they sell these like eye magnets where you rub it over your eye, and it pulls all the shit out of your eye. I'm too afraid to use it. Well, I don't Safety have first, kids. glasses. Well, I think that's a show. That's it. I think we've got a show. That's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think anybody noticed Morocco's connection was in and out there, but I think we're good. I think we're good. Are you so have just fun a reminder. <laughs> It's a lot of me groaning on my end. There I hope is, you keep there some is. of those groans. It sounds like a dodgy sex tape we could uh, compile. <laughs> hey, oh, baby, I like a little dodgy sex tape. All right. Bring it back to the brambles. Thorny, thorny, uh, what did he say before? Thorny something or other. Horny, thorny. Horny, thorny. Uh, so a reminder of the forum. Um, if you've got any questions, put some on there or via Instagram. We're Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram. Reminder of the Knife Talk t-shirts, which are available on knifetalk.net. And remember, we've got a new episode every Monday. That's it. See you later. That's it. Bye-bye. We're Thank done. you. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.